I want to introduce our storyteller this morning. You know, Jesus said that he's come to give us life, and not just life as in we're just alive, but life to the full, or the abundant life as it's sometimes translated. And I've often wondered, what would my life be like if I didn't get attached to possessions, if I sort of just was deliberate and diligent about every decision in my life, where would the Spirit's wind take me? And the answer to that question is, it might look a lot like Ray Brooks' life. So Ray, come on up and tell us the story. All right. All right, well buckle up, because I'm going to give you a fast tour through my journey to faith. It's a journey of being born new right here in this church at the age of 61. How about that? 15 years ago. Amen. I was first born in my mother's womb in Los Angeles where I grew up to a lower middle class blue collar family with strong work ethic and they didn't go to church. So let's skip ahead to going to college. I was a first generation college student. I worked my way through college in a grocery store and it took me eight years to get through junior college in Fullerton State College. Cal State is next to Disneyland, just picture that. Or Anaheim Stadium if you're a ball fan. So along the way, I got married. Actually engaged at 19, married at 21, and my son was born eight months later. <laughs> I also started my career at 23 selling Folgers coffee, and as I did that, I had a success paradigm. You see, it looks like a lot of people. Success means get a job, get promoted, make more money, bigger house, better car, better boat, and life will be good. So that worked like this. It's up to me. It's for me, and it's all about me. You see, it's selfish ambition, self-centeredness. We call it sin, and I had it to the utmost. I loved my work. I worked hard, and I found that promotions came with transfers. So... I was transferred from L.A. to Sacramento to Cincinnati to Portland to Seattle and fell in love with it here and said, I'm not moving. But I love my work. Everything worked pretty well, including family. You know, my son was growing up. We, on weekends and holidays, we went boating, water skiing, skiing, did all those kinds of things that... Uh, husband and wife and son can do together with other families. So life was going good, but when I was 48, my son was 26, had graduated U UW, and he died. And my life changed forever. You see, God broke me. Looking back, I can see that he made good come of it. Because I started seeking, and as I sought answers to life questions, like why? Why am I here? Why did Ron die? Why do I live? What's my purpose? What's my identity? Who am I anyway? I started seeking these answers, and it took me on a journey. It took 12 years on this journey. I was a seeker. 
I was seeking meaning and purpose, and it started out with physical stuff and then went to mental, emotional, and spiritual. And so the culmination of this 12-year journey after Ron died was three years of amazing spiritual experiences as God was drawing me to himself. In the year 2000, I retired from my 35-year wonderful career with Procter & Gamble and began in Mexico hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. They call it a through-hiker when you start in Mexico and you're going to Canada. And I was solo, walking alone with God in his creation and had amazing experiences that at the end of that journey, I found myself in a motel room, opened a drawer, pulled out this Gideon Bible, and I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the first time. And I said to myself, one o'clock in the morning, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. The next year, I took off on a journey riding my bicycle through 50 states and 10 provinces of Canada. I called it 60 Cycle, visiting 60 rotary clubs along the way. I'd become a Rotarian. And it was fulfilling my son's dream and mine. You see, he called me healthy, and I was trying to live his dream to be as healthy as I could. And he wanted to ride his motorcycle across the country. So here I was, fulfilling his dream and mine, and as I spoke at Rotary Clubs, one club in Langley, British Columbia, invited me to speak at a district conference two years later. I finished the journey, came home, and a couple months later, my wife died. She was 59. We'd been married 40 years. It was a tragic accident. But just before that, I had taken this course in this church called Alpha. It was 10 weeks, Wednesday nights. And halfway through that, I'd given my life to Jesus Christ. And so now, here, after my wife died, a short time later, God called me to a, what turned out to be a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 journey kayaking the Sea of Cortez in Baja, a thousand-mile journey. Wasn't my plan, but it was his, so that I might get to know him at a deeper level. Wow. I came back from that journey, went to this place in Canada called Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia, and it was there that I'd been invited to two years earlier. I took mom with me. And I was introduced to this lady, Ray. I want you to meet my friend, Gay, who has a similar adventure, some spirit as you. She backpacked through Africa last year with her 76-year-old mother. <laughs> Tell me about your mom. <laughs> the theme of Rotary that year, coincidentally, so seeds of love. And there I was, to give a 45-minute talk, 45 days after finishing my kayak journey, and it was a bold Christian testimony. The title was the, the Spirit of a Solo Adventurer. It wasn't long down the journey from there that mom and I were driving back to Mercer Island from Harrison Hot Springs and this little voice in my head that had been speaking to me in Baja whispered, this is the woman I have chosen for you. And a short time later, it was she is a blessing to you and you are a blessing to her. The short story, I proposed to Gay the day before our first date we were married three weeks later. <laughs> Next week, we will celebrate 
our 14th wedding anniversary at Fern Resort, just an hour and a half north of Toronto, with our family. The point. What is the point of the story? It's all history. It is all history. It is his story. It is true love, fruit of faith. Praise God. This morning's scripture is from the book of John. And please follow along in your Bibles as, uh, or read from the screens as, uh, as we get to John 3, 16, verses 16 to 21 in the New International Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The word of the Lord. Well, as Peter mentioned, I'm the youth pastor here. My name is Brent, and this is my last sermon to you all. This is, in fact, my last Sunday. It's been hard for even I to... Um, to make this decision, and it's been hard to say goodbye. And I think it's been even harder to find the words to express what all of you have meant to us. It's been hard, um, it's been hard preparing this sermon, and it's been hard to figure out how best to articulate everything that you have meant to even I over these years. Uh, I'm not sure if there is a way to articulate it perfectly uh, or to say all the thoughts that I have in my heart for all of you. But one thing I am very glad about this morning is that Peter gave me John 3.16 to preach on. It's a great passage, a very well-known passage, perhaps the best well-known passage we have in Scripture, and it is about relationships. How perfect it is to talk about relationships on the day that I will be preaching my last sermon and reflecting on all the relationships that I have with you all. As even I look back over the last four years at Evergreen, our fondest memories involve the moments we had with people, particularly some of the moments we had with the youth when they were most vulnerable, when we were on retreats, when we were on mission trips, and through the bonding we had of shared experiences, of doing fun things like whitewater rafting, but also very nerve-wracking things like sharing our life stories and being raw and honest with each other, people were in a vulnerable state. Moments like these allowed me to get to know the youth and other people at church in an intimate, face-to-face -face way. I think at any station in life, the most powerful thing we will experience is the relationships we have with other people. More so than the house we are in, what type of job we have, uh, our hobbies, anything like that, the most powerful thing in any station in our life is the relationships that we have 
for people. And this is what I think John 3.16 is all about. It's about the power of relationship. See, God sent his son into this world in order to bring us back into relationship with God because we were out of relationship with God. And I think later on in the passage, our scripture is saying that there are two options for how to respond to God. There are two options for how to respond to God sending his son to us. We see the paradigm of those living in the light and then those living in the darkness. For those in the light, it says that they will accept Jesus's bid for relationship and help and they will be saved. And those in the darkness will fear this relationship and perish. We have here in our scripture the option to either reject or accept this relationship. Jesus is offering salvation. He's offering a chance to be saved from certain perishing. So why would anyone reject this? I think in order to answer this question, we have to look at when relationships first went south in the first place. Of course, that's the beginning, right? Um, look at the picture I have here on the side. This is an image of the Trinity. It's a very famous icon. It's one of my very favorite pictures of the Trinity. And for me, the power of it is the fact that they are looking at each other. In scripture, there's this idea of facing one another. And to face someone means you're looking at them. Your gaze is at them. You're walking towards them. It doesn't mean you're right there, but facing someone means you're on a journey towards them. Your thoughts are towards them. Okay, and then the next thing in scripture we have is the concept of being face-to-face. Face-to-face is even more intimate. No longer are you just walking towards someone, but you're literally face-to-face, looking at their eyes, sharing moments with them, being fully present physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the amazing thing about the Trinity is it says in scripture that God is love. Now, when it says this, I think it's not just saying that God has the attribute of love, but that God is is love. That is one of the definitions for the Trinity is love. And being face to face is a way to describe this love. The Trinity, the Trinity, even though they are three separate persons, are in such close relationship with each other that they are actually one essence. They hide nothing from each other. They're fully a present, have no secrets to confess. And this is the idea of being face to face. Humanity, too, starts off in a sort of face-to-face relationship with God. When you look at Genesis, you see this picture of God walking in the garden. He's physically present, emotionally, spiritually present with Adam and Eve. They are present with him and present with each other. They literally have nothing to hide. And then we know the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. And I think the temptation that this serpent gives Adam and Eve is that the relationship with God is holding them back from something. And so when he tempts them and Adam and Eve decide to eat the fruit, the action they do is reaching up and then turning their backs. Literally, after they're caught in the act, they are seen hiding. And I think this is a blueprint for all sin. Sin is about breaking your relationship from God or from each other. And the result of breaking this relationship of being face-to-face is to turn your back. Look again at our scripture in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. This theme of relationship and of facing one another continues throughout scripture. When I was studying this, at first I had written down like 50 verses, and then thankfully uh, I decided that it would be a bad idea to share them all with you. But the point is that it is a huge theme throughout scripture. And the thing we see is that God is always facing us, continually facing us, thinking about us, praying for us, and doing everything he can to seek us out And humans are pretty off and on. Sometimes we're facing God, other times we turn away. We can see this in the garden. 
We see God seeking Adam and Eve, even after they have sinned, even after they are hiding, God then walks. He walks towards them, facing them, and says, why are you hiding? We can see it in the next story we have with Cain and Abel. Cain hides his best offering from God, and then God brings this to light. And because of this, Cain is ashamed, and he kills Abel to avoid dealing with his shame. And then again, God still faces Cain and seeks him out and says, where is your brother? God continues to pursue Cain and focus on loving Cain and ends up actually not killing Cain as a punishment, but blessing him. We see this again when God seeks out Abraham and Sarah. God comes to Abraham, says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham believes him at first. And then, as we know, a few um, chapters later, we see Abraham continually not believing in God's power, continually Abraham is relying on deceiving people wherever he is in order to try and save his life. We even see God appearing in the form of angels to Abraham and Sarah. And when the angels tell Sarah that she will give birth to a child in old age, Abraham and Sarah laugh. We see this again when God seeks out a relationship with King David. When he has Samuel anoint David, we hear that David is a man after God's own heart. And oftentimes God, sorry, oftentimes David does face and seek a relationship with God, yet there's times that David hides. And he hides deep, dark secrets. Like when he seeks a relationship with Bathsheba and is willing to kill Uriah. And at this point, David is so hiding from God, so not facing God, that God has to send the prophet Nathan in order to confront him in a face-to-face -face interaction. So being face-to-face -face is hard. And I want to explore why this is. So think of the idioms we have in our culture that involve the face. You can face up to a problem. This means you have to deal with something serious. You have to face it head on. You have to sometimes face the facts. Sometimes the facts and the reality of a situation are hard to face. And if you want to meet someone face to face, it implies you are ready for some sort of intense moment. This could be an intimate thing, or perhaps you want to have a face to face confrontation with someone. Face to face is hard because it makes us deal with our insecurities, our faults, and our fail failures. Being face to face means we expose our unedited self. We can't just text someone or have something witty on Facebook or Instagram. Face-to-face -face is unedited, and people see that you're really not as witty or clever as you want them to think you are. So a show of hands, who has ever been nervous before when confronting a friend about a hard subject? Right? Okay. What about confessing something you did wrong, like an addiction you have? Was that hard for anyone? I'm sure, okay? What about the first time you were face to face and you bared your soul and told someone that you liked them or loved them? Was that nerve wracking at all? It was for me. <laughs> facing someone is hard. Remember, facing someone in scripture is like getting to know someone, walking towards them. And then being face to face with them is even harder. The face-to-face -face moments are these pivotal moments where your mask and guard are down and your heart is completely bared before this person. And we often avoid face-to-face -face interactions, each in our own way. We choose to avoid anxiety. We choose to avoid pain. And we choose to avoid this because we have a fear that it is too great to bear and that we literally cannot handle the anxiety. I even was anxious before coming up and preaching to you all, right? I think sometimes a face-to-face -face interaction where you're being vulnerable, one analogy I could think of is like a Band-Aid when you pull it off and it, if you have hairy arms, you know, and you pull it off and that, that really hurts. Um, that's still kind of weak. There's, um, it's more intense than that. I have a story from my youth that I think would um, explain this well. When I was in third grade, I went on a camping trip at Cove Palisades, which is this amazing Oregon State Park in Eastern Oregon. 
And um, I was, there's a lot of big boulders. It's uh, at the bottom of a canyon, and there's um, a lot of trees as well. And I was climbing a tree um, as far as I could get up. I, I think I was probably 10 feet up. It felt like 20 feet, because I was only in third grade. And I uh, reached up my leg. The branch snapped. I fell backwards, just straight back. And instead of hitting the ground, I first hit a boulder, and I like skidded down the boulder. And then when I was down on the ground, I was covered in blood and scratches and pine needles and twigs, and it really hurt. And um, so my cousins went screaming. They uh, took me, uh, rushed me over to my parents and my aunts and uncles. And my aunts and uncles were like, whoa, this is going to scar. We should bring him to the hospital. And in my dad's typical fashion, he said, oh, no, you know, I think we'll be okay. Let's just, uh, let's just clean it and bandage it up. So as he was bandaging and cleaning me up, something he saw was that I had a small twig, like, um, you can't really see my hands, but just imagine you can, like this big. And this twig was inside of my arm. And where it was inside of, there was blood and a little bit of green pus. And uh, my dad took tweezers and he started to pull and I said, stop, that hurts too much. I can't handle the pain. Um, and so he said, okay, I'll leave it in there. Not sure why he did that, but that's what he did. Maybe he was trying to teach me something. Um, and so I let it stay in there because I was so nervous about pulling it out in the moment of intense pain I would have. I let it stay in there for the rest of the vacation. I let it stay in there as we came home. Now we're talking a week and a half later. This twig is still in my arm and still daily, it has this sort of green pus oozing out. I mean, I even couldn't see the red blood because there was so much green. It was disgusting. And, I would, and eventually, I got to a point where this pain became unbearable, and I said, okay, I'm ready. So my dad took the tweezers, and he pulled it out. And sure enough, it was more painful than letting um, it fester. Well, it was more painful in the moment. But then immediately after he took it out, it started feeling better. And then he cleaned the wound, and it healed, and things were good. Now, what's interesting is I still have a little bit of a scar from this, actually. It's a small little round scar on my arm. And what it reminds me of is, I guess, kind of my own stupidity, but then also humanity's, um, humanity's position in general, how we avoid things that hurt because we think we cannot bear the pain, but then the healing that comes when we decide to step away from the darkness and into the light and expose our secrets and things that are getting us down. I think too often my disposition has been to let things fester. I've lied to myself and told myself, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to bring up this confrontation with this person. I don't want to share this secret with that person. And time will take care of it. Eventually, things will get better. And this is the lie that I had about the twig in my arm. When we don't deal with things that have happened to us, things that have happened to others, when we don't deal with the brokenness that is in the world, it's like letting a wound fester and not heal. I have one such story of avoidance um, with a person. I wasn't sure if I, sure if I was going to share it. But I prayed and I talked with this person actually yesterday and decided that I should share it. Um, this was actually a story of avoidance that I had with a person here at church. A friend of mine who is a member here wanted to be a leader in the youth group. And they were a very intense person. And sometimes their intensity rubbed me the wrong way. And they have this passion and intensity for Christ. And I mistook this intensity for some sort of like legalistic dogma. Even though there were signs all along that this person was not like that. Well, they asked if they could be a volunteer. And I found a way to politely say no and dance around my true thoughts about the situation. What happened in the weeks that followed was I avoided their gaze at church. It was awkward. It was awkward for both of us. And this just kept on going on. I started to feel like maybe I was going about it the wrong way. So I decided to talk to a few people I confided in. That's not what I should have done. I should have just talked to this person, right? We do this all the time. 
I did everything but what I actually should have done. And then finally, this person confronted me and asked to speak with me face to face. And I'm so glad they did. Because well, it was a long conversation, but after about an hour, I just, I broke down. I told them, you know, my true feelings. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is what I thought. And, um, and then we both cried. And uh, it was this wonderful redeeming moment. All because this person decided to do something hard and have a face-to-face -face confrontation with me. And it became this really, this moment I actually, it's one of the moments I treasure most through being a pastor here. Because it was a moment that I was not perfect. It was a moment that I didn't do the right thing. But this other person did. And we ended up having a great relationship um, afterwards. But this doesn't always happen. Not with me or others. I do have unresolved brokenness in some of my relationships. And I bet that most of you do too. And I believe that scripture points out that we all have unresolved issues with others and with ourselves. We all belong to broken relationships. Sometimes this is with other people we know, like our family or our friends. Sometimes this is what scripture refers to as the other. Someone in, in a different socioeconomic status, a different race, a different culture. People we fear because we have not met them face to face or even faced them. Tried to get to know them and tried to get to know their story. Sometimes the unresolved brokenness we have is with ourselves. We've not been true to ourselves and true to our own stories and shared this with God. And always we have brokenness with God in our relationship with him. And God's answer to the brokenness in relationship in this passage is to initiate a face-to-face -face relationship. This is the idea of the incarnation, of God sending his son in the flesh to walk amongst us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Yet, our inclination is not to believe in him and his counterintuitive paradigm that he brings. We have dark secrets, sins, and issues. How could coming into the light and painfully exposing ourselves bring freedom? So often, we are like the people who love the darkness. Like Eve, our gut is to hide. How often, when faced with brokenness, do people choose darkness instead? Instead of dealing with the intimacy of face-to-face, -face, we call or prefer to text and email if we even do that. We escape the intensity of face-to-face -face interactions by gossiping about the person instead of talking with them. Instead of dealing with our anxieties, we have escape mechanisms. People escape problems in marriages with affairs. People escape anxieties of their self with addictions to things like porn or food or drugs, people inflict pain on one another out of broken relationship. From experiencing deep brokenness, people can even be led to abuse others. Not just committing sins of avoidance, but actually committing sins where you inflict pain upon others. You can become so convinced that the only way to succeed in life is to succeed at the cost of others. And history has shown this, you can only do this by dehumanizing or purposely avoiding the gaze of the other as you benefit from their loss. Most of the great accomplishments we have had in history were done through dehumanizing others, through purposely choosing to not look at someone's face or get to know them. Pastor Peter has mentioned before a quote from Louis C.K. Um, that I will certainly paraphrase. And this is how it goes. Of course, slavery is bad, but every incredible achievement in human history was done through suffering. You want, you want pyramids built? Just throw human suffering and Jewish slaves at it. You want a railroad across America built? Just throw the human suffering of immigrants at it. Do you want a cool new iPhone? Just throw human suffering at it. Pack a bunch of workers in a factory with crazy long hours and low wages, and it can get done. 
Friends, the picture we see in Scripture and today all too often is of facelessness. And it is into this darkness that God continues to gaze anyways and face us. God has, is, and will always face us and seek to mend our relationship with him. The Old Testament looked forward to this day that God would appear to us face to face. Look at Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. King David remarks in Psalm 17, As for me, I will be vindicated, and I will see your face, Lord. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And we can see this in John 3.16. Out of God's steadfast love for us, he literally comes face to face, in the flesh, and lives amongst us, even though many did not turn and face him in return. The book of Isaiah has a prophecy that describes Jesus experiencing, uh, sorry, the book of Isaiah has a prophecy that describes Jesus' experience of choosing to face us in the flesh on this earth and live amongst us. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. And a few chapters later, Isaiah switches to the third person to describe Jesus' act of facing us. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem, surely took up our pain and bore our suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The cost of decay and brokenness in relationship is that we cannot be face to face with God and live. This was an Old Testament saying, you cannot be face to face with God and live. If you see God's face, surely it will kill you. And what I think scripture is referring to is the energy of death that is the result of brokenness. So one time I was at a youth conference. I heard this great preacher, um, Pastor Judy Howard, speak. And she did something really bold. This is what she said to the group. She was talking about sin. And she said, okay, not now, but in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. So stay seated, but I'm going to ask you to stand if you need to confess an addiction to drugs. She said, not now, but in a minute, I need you to stand if you are going to fit, um, confess an addiction to porn. Not now, but in a minute, I am going to ask you to stand if you have ever gossiped or talked, someone, talked about someone behind their back. Not now, but in a minute, I will ask you to stand if you have ever avoided talking with someone because it was uncomfortable. So she ended up not asking us to stand. She told us right away, okay, I'm not going to actually have you to stand, which was a great idea. Um, but everyone's hearts in the room were beating. Everyone could feel it. Their mouths were dry. Remember that feeling you get when you're about to confess, that feeling you get when people are about to find out that you have faults, that you have failures, that you're insecure, that you're not as great as people think you are? Everyone gets that. And if we get that just by the thought of having to confess or be honest with imperfect people, how much greater then is the anxiety that you would get when facing the Lord? I think this is what it gets. I think this concept is where we get this idea in the Old Testament of to, if you face God, you will die. See, the sort of 
nervous energy you have when you're about to confess your unworthiness, there's so much nervous, anxious energy over our brokenness that it's literally palpable. And this force of decay and death that is brought on through our brokenness was so insurmountable that if someone were to face God, they would die because they literally would be anxious to the point of death and could not stand before God. So there's this concept that the brokenness of relationship is insurmountable. And death would be a result of seeing God face to face. So what does God do? He takes that death upon himself. This is the beauty of the incarnation. When Jesus came to this earth to seek a face-to-face relationship with us, he knew death would be the result, and he was willing to take that death upon himself so that we could live. At his own pearl, Jesus seeks out a relationship with us. He confronts and faces us, and when we do not have the strength to deal with the brokenness inside of us, he deals with it for us, out of his love for us. God's final say on relationship is that he will always seek it. He will always face us. And he does this by giving his one and only son. This was out of his great love for the world. Through the power of God's love for us, we're saved and we are given a new paradigm for how to operate. We are to choose relationship, even if it is at a great cost. It will be a great cost. Jesus had his body beaten and lost his life just to face us, to choose relationship with us. It can be costly and painful. However, we're not to fear or hide the dark. Rather, we should embrace this temporary pain that will come when we choose to live in the light. We have to trust and believe in Jesus. Trust that exposing our unedited self to him and to others will set us free. So an application. God seeks a face-to-face relationship with you. Respond by facing him. Be honest about your story, your hurts, your failures, and your triumphs, and pray these things to God. Seek 100% conversations with God. Oftentimes, we have 80% conversations, but we leave out the dark secrets and the uncomfortable 20%. Seek 100% conversation with God. Lament to him. Share your thoughts with him. Get help with addictions or any sort of coping mechanism you have that keeps you hidden in the dark. Do not hide. Be willing to experience the costly pain of bringing these things to light, for it is only temporary, and it will be replaced with joy. Face-to-face was costly for Jesus. He had to give up his life. And it's costly for us too. In fact, scripture says we do actually die. We die to ourselves and we're born into a new creation. As a new creation, seek out face-to-face relationships with each other. Don't let any relationship be unresolved like I had. In the New Testament, Paul often writes in all of his letters, the beginning or the end, and so do other authors like Peter, I hope to see you soon face-to-face. And I think they knew what they were talking about. This means having difficult conversations. This means confronting one another. Talk to the family members you avoid. Talk to people at church you avoid. Have 100% real conversations. I think that uh, Peter before has talked about the concept of being safe and holy. That Jesus was a safe and holy person. He was safe. You could confess. You could be vulnerable. You could be who you are. But he was holy. He still asked you to live a different way. And I think this idea of being face-to-face, having 100% conversations, bringing the painful things into the light is what it means to be safe and holy. One of the beautiful things about youth group for me has been the strength of retreats and mission trips to accomplish this. When you bond with one another, when you share intense experiences with one another, sometimes when you are a little sleep-deprived, It somehow lets your masks and guards come off and it lets you to be raw and vulnerable with one another. One of my most beautiful moments I can remember as the youth pastor here was CHIC, which stands for Covenant High Schoolers in Christ. This was a conference um, we went to a few years ago with the high schoolers. And 
um, through the process of bonding and getting to know one another, we would have these big discussions um, where there'd be a pastor and there'd be about 6,000 youth listening to them uh, and there'd be a sermon. And then afterwards, we would have small group discussions with our youth group. And our youth kids, they were able to cry. They were able to share their true thoughts with one another. Um, some of them were kind of nervous when they shared their stories and when they would talk faster. But what happened is through letting our guards down, taking off our masks, being real with each other, facing each other, we ended up having a really good time. Because after you get all those painful things out, you end up trusting one another. It ends up becoming this safe and holy environment where you can be who you are. You don't have to pretend to be cool. You don't have to pretend like you know how to dance. Before the evening sessions, there'd be music, and people would dance with the goofiest sort of dances you could ever imagine. And there was just this sort of freedom. And the kids would have these smiles, and it was amazing. So there's joy that comes from being face-to-face. It is painful when you first expose things to the light, but the joy that replaces it is astounding. Um, Another application point, when making hard decisions, don't just ask, is this sinful or unsinful? I think that sometimes we just ask that. And the thing is, I think it's important to define sin. Because if if we don't define sin, then we end up asking less critical um, questions for ourselves. And I think that if we just ask, is this a sinful decision or not, we slip into the paradigm of focusing on morality. And morality is inherently individualistic. It's about what makes me clean and holy or unclean. Am I sinful or unsinful? I think instead we should ask the paradigm, is this a loving decision? Is this a decision that allows me to be face to face with another person? Am I seeking relationship? Am I seeking community? Or does this decision decision somehow break community? Somehow not foster relationship? Notice the Pharisees got this wrong. They focused on who was clean or unclean. Am I sinful or not? And they were not able to see Jesus and his movement that was about a loving community and being face to face. Um, One last application. As a new creation, we are to imitate Christ. We We are to seek out relationships with, again, this concept of the other, people who are different from us, a different race, a different socioeconomic status, a people group that somehow we're not connected to. And too often we don't seek out relationships like this. God is always seeking relationships with the other. He seeks relationships with everyone in scripture, not just Israel or those who follow the correct doctrine. It's so interesting, the people that we see God and we see Jesus seeking out in scripture. He seeks out prostitutes. He seeks out fishermen. He seeks out lepers and sinners, right? And a very intriguing example of this is the wise men in Luke. We see these wise men from the east. We think maybe they're Zoroastrian. They're probably not Jewish. They have a different religious system. Their system is about astrology and looking at the stars. Yet God uses their imperfect understanding of the divine, and he works within their system to point out the truth to them. So somehow through following the star of Bethlehem, they actually end up coming face to face with Jesus. I think Paul speaks to this in Acts 17 when he's in Athens before a crowd. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Athenians and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. How beautiful is that? God wants us all to seek out and find him and perhaps 
we will. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Well, it's time to say farewell. I'm leaving Evergreen, as Peter told you. I'm moving on to be a seventh grade history teacher at the Bear Creek School in Redmond, Washington. As I said before, it was a very hard process for Eve and I to make this decision. And what it involved was having a face-to-face conversation with God and with others and really searching and being honest with my strengths, the things that I love, the things that are hard for me. And one of uh, the things that came about is I realized that I kind of struggle with administration. It's not my strong suit. And for me, I don't know, it's a very big bulk of my job. Maybe there'd be a way to do it slightly differently, but something I discovered is that my job is heavily administrative. And um, it was just pretty darn hard, that aspect of it. But, of course, the thing that is hard is to leave the relationships I have with people, which is why I think it took me a while to come to this conclusion. I love time with you all. I love time with your youth. In fact, I so love time with your students, my interactions with them. Something I've started to lament over the years is I feel like I don't get as much time with them. And I started to become a little jealous of um, the teachers in their schools who see them every single day. And so... I guess I'm giving that a shot and seeing what that's like. Um, Yeah. So as I said before, hard to articulate this all. I hope I've done a good job. I'm really sad to leave this community, to to leave these relationships, because even I have loved it so much. We have grown so close to you. We thank you, parents, for letting us and entrusting us with your youth when we take them on trips across the country and out of the country as we are prepared to go to Guatemala. Thank you, youth, for inviting me into your life and inviting Eva into your life. Thank you for having face-to-face relationships with us, for sharing who you are at your core, and for letting me share who I am. I will always treasure those moments that we had. Yeah, I think that's it. Facing each other is hard. And um, now before I go, I just ask and hope and pray that this church will do that, that you will face each other, you will have hard conversations, and grow closer to one another and closer to God. So let me give you one final blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.